Welcome back to the Apostles' Mailbox, where the goal is to build up the Bride of Christ. Uh, this week and back in John chapter 1, we're going to be talking about a topic that has actually caused Christians to declare each other heretics and uh, caused no end of debate. Uh, we're going to uh, sort of crack open a door that hopefully will bring a lot of questions up, and uh, we're going to try not to give you too many answers, actually, because um, we want to be silent where Scripture doesn't speak, and we want to let it speak what it does, and that might be a little bit challenging for you. I know some of us, we like to have answers, we like to have everything buttoned down and clear, uh, but we might not quite get there today. Uh, so at any rate, uh, we're going to open some of these questions up and we're going to, they will they will come up again and again and again as we uh, continue to read John and see Jesus through the eyes of his closest disciple. So I wanted to begin uh, this week's um, podcast by by describing to you a uh, an experience that I had. Um, I was preaching a sermon one Sunday and and I was preparing the text and and it was it was uh, one of those texts where you, where you read it out loud like I read it out loud and I felt like I had to uh, I don't want I don't want to say clarify, but I felt like I had to like adjust the text like I had to fix something that the Apostle Paul had left just too dangerously unclear. Uh, what the text was, um, was this. In 1 Corinthians 15.21, Paul writes, For as by a man came death, he's of course referring to Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And he's referring uh, to Jesus Christ. And, and when, I, when I read that, I thought like, Oh man, but I gotta like I gotta make sure that the that the people understand that Jesus wasn't just a man, that he was fully God, and and like I had to adjust Paul's theology somehow uh, to get this right. And when that happens, uh, when we read the text and we feel like the text isn't isn't clear enough or isn't uh, it's missing something big. What I, what I think is happening is in our head, like we have this idea that we have God figured out better than the person who wrote it. And we need to fix it. We need to adjust it. And that's usually a sign that our theology, I think, has run ahead of something. And we've maybe, um, we've maybe started to believe some things either to be more important than they are in the grand scheme of things, uh, or maybe we even believe something that's not true. Like, Maybe we've been indoctrinated with something that we assume is true, and uh, and when the when the text seems to contradict it, like we have to fix the text to make it fit our theology. And so uh, I think we're going to run into one of those today, actually, um, and uh, hopefully you're challenged by it. I know I've just been wrestling with this uh, for a week trying to make sense of it. Okay, so by way of review, uh, and in John chapter one, we've had this. Um, we've had this repeated refrain. I've, I've, I've mentioned that there's two words for being in John chapter 1 uh, that show up again and again. Uh, one of them is the word for was, and we saw that in, in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and what God was, the word was, and he was with God or toward God in the beginning. We spent a whole episode talking about basically that verse, um, the, the connection between the Word and God. Uh, and then that, that same word shows up again, that he, John introduces this idea of the light in, in verse 4 first. It's not as clear there, but in verse 9 and verse 10, we have these statements very clear that the light was, that it, that it was, 
okay? And then uh, we also have in John 1 uh, this word that, that has to do with becoming, okay? And so we saw that in verse 3 where uh, we're told that nothing became or nothing was created, nothing came into existence uh, except through the word. Everything that came, that became, became through the word. And, and we mentioned how in the Greek Septuagint, in the Old Testament, in Genesis 1, the same word shows up. Uh, God said, let there be light, and there became light. There was light. And so this it's this word with this sense of becoming, right? And so in John 1, all created things became uh, through the word. And then we're told in verse 4 that there became a man, his name was John, and that 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 the world became uh, through this light the, that was coming into the world. Everything had become through it, and never, nevertheless, they didn't recognize it. And then we also saw uh, in verse twelve that to those who did receive uh, the one who came into the world, that they received the right to become children of God. Right, So it's this idea that something that wasn't now comes into existence. And here's where it gets interesting, because you have this description of the Word was, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was toward God or was with God, and uh, what God was, the Word was, um, and it, it, the, the Word was in the beginning towards God. And then in verse 14, you have this, this massive statement, okay? It says, the Word, the Logos, became flesh. Okay, so so he's he's contrasting these terms between that which always was and that which came into existence, that which became. And then, despite having said that, that the Logos was, now John is going to say the Logos became. Something new has come into existence. Um, and, and we know that which became the Logos, it already was before it became. So it's not like there was nothing whatsoever and then sort of uh, out of nothing uh, became uh, Jesus. Uh, but we're told that the word became flesh, that something changed. Something new has come into being. So the King James Version uh, and some other uh, versions would, would translate this, that, that the word was made flesh. Okay, so I've been talking about this. Sometimes in the old, people, you know, trying to find Jesus in the Old Testament, they look at, at passages in the Old Testament where um, where the angel of the Lord appears to people and God reveals himself in like a burning bush or whatever. And, and they're, they're tempted to say, and sometimes they just flat out say it like, well, that was Jesus. That was the pre-incarnate Christ. That was the second member of the Trinity showed up and then talked to these people because uh, that's, you know, that's how God talks to people is through the second member of the Trinity. And look, you know, there was this being that was physical, a physical being that showed up and it was, you know, it's described as the angel of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord, but really who that was is the second member of the Trinity. And I think when we do that, like we're, we're, we're cramming our, our New Testament assumptions back into the Old Testament because the fact is that Jesus, that the Word, I'm trying not to get too ahead of myself here, the Word, which became flesh, did not have flesh before that day, right? And so, um, you would say, Jesus has flesh <laughs> post, well, we, we 
typically referred to as the incarnation, this uh, this being born of the Virgin Mary, right? And 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 we think like, oh, so therefore, any representation of God with a body, whether Old Testament or New, it must mean Jesus. But that's not the case because Jesus didn't. There there was no Jesus body, if you will, in the Old Testament. The Word, John says, became flesh. Something new has happened. And we're going to talk about perhaps uh, how, how I think Paul describes this in Philippians 2. Uh, but what, what John is saying here, and, and so we can't miss it, is in verse 1 he said the word was. In the beginning the word was prostontheon. It was toward God. Go back and listen to that episode if you want. It was, it was that which, uh, which, which approached God, if you will. And what God was, the Word was. And then this Word became flesh. It came into the world. It did not exist in physical form in the world prior to uh, the birth of Jesus Christ, or the, I guess, the overshadowing of Mary by the Holy Spirit, uh, the conception of Jesus Christ, okay? And so I bring this up and I at great length belabor the point because I want you to, to be careful. This is one of our biggest dangers when we do theology is be careful that your doctrine does not keep you from the truth. And, and what do I mean by that, okay? Well, it's, it's okay not to understand exactly how everything works. And what happens, though, is we have these questions come up, and we're, we're tempted to sort of simplify God and put it in layman's terms, if you will, or, or try to understand this in an in a easy way. And when we do that, when we take this idea of, of God, which is, which is infinite, right, and, and transcends all creation and time, and then we, we try to cram it down into like this short summary statement that a, that a four-year-old can understand completely, uh, in Sunday school, like, we have distorted our view of who God is, right? We have taken something immeasurably greater than us. Isaiah says that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so far above us are his ways and our ways and his thoughts and our thoughts. So he's like infinitely, immeasurably beyond us. And then we come up with this idea about God and we we cram it down into a summary statement and we tell it to people like, well, this is who God is. And when we do that, we're getting it wrong. We, we're, <laughs> we're getting it wrong. You cannot describe God in human terms uh, properly and faithfully. And so what you can do is you can make statements sort of how God has revealed himself and how he has worked in the past, but you can just cram him down into this little topic. And unfortunately, that's sort of our tendency as, as people to do that. And this has happened historically in the church. And so in the early days of the church, right, there, there were these questions like, you know, how exactly does a relationship between the Father and the Son work? And how is it that Jesus is, you know, the Word that pre-existed, and then, but then he also lived as a man? And, and so you, you have these theologians um, that unfortunately during their day and age, they took a whole, a whole truckload of Greek philosophy and ideas about God and being, and they took those ideas and they, I think they smashed them into the Bible and they started using words and terms and ideas from their philosophy to sort of make sense of the Christian faith. 
right? And so they defined many of, I think, the core doctrines of our faith according to terms of Greek philosophy. And one of the earliest church councils, when they're arguing about the nature of God, uh, they came up with these terms. Uh, to use to describe God, and and a whole pile of the bishops are like, but those terms aren't in Scripture. Like, how are we going to define God faithfully according to words that don't don't actually show up in Scripture? And the and the answer was, well, the emperor says that we all need to get on the same page, and this is the best way to do it. And ironically enough, uh, the reason that the emperor argued that they should all sign on to these terms is he said because. He said, you know what? These words are pretty loosey-goosey, and you can all mean whatever you want them to mean when you say them. And so, at least you can all use the same words now, even if you don't exa exactly agree with each other on how exactly they fit together. Um, if you all agree on that word, then we can all, it, it will look like the church is not divided and on the same page. <laughs> so, he took this like vague term, and then he put it in into into a creed, and then all the people had to vote for it, and a couple people didn't. Of course, they were exiled, as normally happens uh, when when church and government get together and de decide how things are going to happen. And then uh, another whole handful of church councils were sort of, uh, the, the need for them was birthed, right? Now they, they brought this term in, and now they had to define the term in a way that everybody agreed with. And so then they had to have another council to say, well, how does this, how does this term about the substance of God and the essence of God, and, and, you know, is Jesus made out of the same stuff as God the Father, or is he just, you know, a similar type of stuff is God the Father. Are they, are they the exact same stuff or just like stuff that's like? I mean, it's just a it's just a mess, right? And so they have all these councils and all these arguments, and what they're trying to do is make God simple. And what what happened though was they left the Scripture far in the rearview mirror, and they started to bring in ideas about God um, that they would define through just sort of like this logical, philosophical reasoning. And then they would say, well, this is who God is. And then if you disagreed with that, you would get kicked out of the church. And so they created some problems. We're going to see some of those problems, I think. I got some scriptures here uh, when we talk about this. So the question is, how, what does exactly mean that Jesus, or, or that the Word, the pre-existent Word, that was prostantheon, that was towards God, that it became, it actually became flesh, it became human. How does, how does that work? And I think the best answer that we can say is, we don't know. Like, we don't know how this works. All we can do is take what we're told in Scripture and say, okay, I agree with that. Right, and we resist this urge to like make up our own human-sized understanding of how exactly this works. So I've been referring to uh, some some problems that are created when you start arguing uh, about these these things according to philosophical terms, right? And so you have this idea that the word became flesh. Well, the, the logos became flesh. What is what does that mean? Well, <laughs> look at this. In Luke 2.52, we read that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Okay, now you have some typical, like, Trinitarian uh, 
classical philosophical ideas about God, when we say that Jesus is fully God and fully man, uh, because that's what the, the early church councils decided was true, um, then you, then you you run into to scriptures like this and you go like, well, well, how do I make sense of that? Because if Jesus is fully God, right, then how does he increase in wisdom? Like, is God getting more wise? That doesn't make any sense. And how is he getting bigger? How is he growing in stature? And, and, and how does God like himself more? Like, if he's increasing in favor with God, that doesn't make any sense. Like, how, how could that possibly be? And so then somebody comes along and says, well, you know, that's just the human element of Jesus. And then somebody else comes along and says, well, it, God has this human, or Jesus has this human element, and he has these, this divine element, but he's only one person. And they're, they're smashed together, and you can't separate the divine part from the human part. Well, if you don't separate out the divine part, then how on earth is Jesus going to increase in wisdom? You know, uh, and so you you come up with these like these ideas that some philosopher reasoned his way into, and then has to defend, and then you come face to face with some scripture that, for instance, says that Jesus grew bigger and wiser, uh, and that God. I don't know why. How would you even translate this? Like God liked him more. He grew in favor with God um, as he grew, and it, and it doesn't. It's, it's hard to make sense of, right? So then you read in 1 Timothy, you read, there is one God, okay? And then there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And you go like, well, wait a minute. If, if Jesus is fully God, then he's not in between man and God. He is God. And so how can he be the mediator between God and man? And, and, and if he is fully divine as as you know we're taught then then how do you make sense of this fact that that Paul calls him the man Jesus Christ is as he's saying well now the human part of Jesus is functioning and the divine part is is not and and it's just really like it's really hard to make sense of and so at some point you get you either come up with this weird explanation or you just uh, say it's a mystery or whatever and then you run into things like this Jesus, out of his own lips, he says, concerning that day and hour, that is his own return, it is not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only knows, right? So, so the disciples ask, like, Jesus, when are you going to return? And he says, I don't know. But then you're, you've been taught that, uh, that when Jesus was human, that he he... Because he was fully man and fully God, he wasn't allowed to get rid of his any of his divine attributes because then he would stop being God. And, uh, and so Jesus did actually know the time of his return when he said that he didn't. And, uh, and <laughs> so they were talking about this at a theology conference I went to, and I went to the speaker afterwards, and I was like, well, how does this work? If, if Jesus is simultaneously at all points, he's fully man and fully God, and his disciples ask him when, when he's going to return, and he says, I don't know, like, how can that be true? Is, is Jesus just lying, or does he really not know? And the guy looked at me, and he said, well, of course Jesus knows in his divine nature, um, because he's God, and he knows all things, because God knows all things, and, and, uh, and so uh, he did know when he told them that he didn't know. But when he when he told them that, he was only speaking from like humanly speaking, from the perspective of his human nature. 
and, and, I, and I looked at him, I was like, that doesn't sound very smart. And he goes, I know it sounds dumb, uh, but when you believe in this stuff, you have to say dumb things. And I don't think that good theology should require us to say dumb things. Um, and so perhaps there's an explanation, right, for this that doesn't... <laughs> That only doesn't make sense because it's not allowed for us to consider. Okay, and, and I'm going to talk about that here in a minute. Okay, so what does the Bible tell us? It says, We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Okay, the author of Hebrews is talking about Jesus. He says, We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Okay, so if it wasn't already obvious, it's obvious now. And we see him right now crowned with glory and honor. Okay, so let me just... Okay, so Jesus was made lower than the angels. And we see him now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Okay, so <laughs> this, is a pretty, this is a pretty big statement here. Um, that... Jesus, for a little while, was made lower than the angels. And you say, well, how can it be uh, that someone who is fully God is lower than the angels? Um, according to classic, like, theology, uh, the things that you're taught, uh, that Jesus was never lower than the angels, that he was, that he remained God and he was fully God at all points. So I've had professors at seminary tell me like, yeah, when Jesus was on earth in a human body, he was omnipresent. He was, he was present everywhere at the exact same time always uh, because he was God and he never stopped being God in any way because that would, I don't know, somehow blow up our idea of the Trinity. And uh, therefore, even though it doesn't make any sense, you have to believe that Jesus, when he was human, he was also omnipresent. Um, and, uh, and that doesn't uh, that doesn't jive with some of the other our, our other readings of scripture. Jesus tells his disciples, "I'm leaving. I'm getting out of here, uh, and you should be happy because I'm going to the Father. And then when I go, then I'll send the Holy Spirit." But if Jesus is like omnipresent in that sense, then why don't you just tell him like, "Well, my body's gonna go, but I'll still be here as present with you as I've ever been." And so these are these are questions, of course, that. That if you ask them at the wrong time in history, just asking the question would have gotten you exiled or perhaps even killed by authorities within the church. And, and why would you ask those questions? Well, you would ask those questions because you're reading your Bible and you're trying to make sense of them. And because Hebrews just said that Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels, right? We just saw that. So, for a little while, right? This is a temporal marker. This means there was a period of time where Jesus was lower than the angels, right? And, and we're not talking about anybody else, of course, right? Because it says, namely Jesus. And so then we come to Philippians 2. And this is one of the big ones. And it has always stuck in my head of like, just really caused me to go, I'm not. Some of the ways that we describe doctrine are just not biblical. So here's what Paul says. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is your, yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay? 
So this term has to do with like seizing a hold of something, or it could even be usually like grabbed or plundered or robbed, right? Something to be to be grabbed a hold of. He said, so Jesus, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grabbed at or clung to, perhaps, depending on translation is could go either way, right? But what did he do instead? He emptied himself, okay? He emptied himself. And by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So as you read this, you think like, well, Jesus had something and then he got rid of it. He emptied it. He emptied himself. Like he set something aside, right? And he, and he did this by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found now in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so you, you kind of see if you're just following this along, and if you haven't been told like this is a not orthodox or allowable way of interpreting this scripture, uh, you would say, well, Jesus was in the form of God, and then he got rid of that in some way, and he became human, and then he he lived a human life, perfectly obedient, even to the point of dying, and then after he died, then God raised him up, and he exalted him, right? He gave him the name above every other name, right? So that uh, at the name of Jesus, right, every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what you see going on here, right, is, is this, this idea that Jesus had divinity that he put aside to become humanity, and that as the result of that obedience, then he was exalted back into the heavenly places and put over everything, right? Now, uh, this, if you take that directly and literally, and you say Jesus got rid of some of his divine attributes or all of them or however you want to uh, guess that might have happened, which is speculation, uh, it's, we're not clear, uh, emptied uh, probably means emptied everything out, uh, then you would say that, well, Jesus <laughs> stopped being divine. It seems really bizarre, but what, what, what would that make him here on earth is it would make him human, which is how Paul described Jesus to uh, to Timothy, said he, the man Jesus Christ. And, and, and then if, if he's truly a man here on earth, then you don't have any problem saying like, well, he didn't know the time of his return. Why? Because the Father hadn't told him. Uh, and, and you wouldn't have any trouble saying like he grew in, in wisdom and in stature because what? He was human. Uh, the, half the message of Hebrews is that he gets us because he was human like us. He didn't just pretends to be human. Now, the theologians will tell you, well, here's the problem. If Jesus was fully God, then he couldn't have ever stopped having those attributes, or he wouldn't actually be God, because to be God means you never change, and you have all these attributes. It's the very definition of God. And so, if at any point Jesus, like, gets rid of those attributes, he stops being God, and we can't have that because Jesus is God, and, uh, and, and God doesn't change. One of the ideas about God that is brought into the Bible and put on it was this idea of, 
I think, uh, is put on Scripture, is this idea of impassibility, that God can't feel anything, that he can't change, that he can't be affected by his creatures, that he just is. And in no way can we in any way really affect him. He is impassible. He can't be um, affected in any way. And and when, <laughs> the, the, of course, the problem with that is, as you look at your Bible and it says things like God changed his mind or he regretted having made Saul made king. And um, and, uh, and, he, and when people repent, he, he threatens to punish them. People repent and then he relents. And and, uh, and there's a lot of, of course, language about God uh, in, in, in what sounds like pretty human terms, emotional terms. Um, and so, but nonetheless, you have a, a group of, of, I would say, people grounded in Greek philosophy who have said, well, no, God doesn't feel those things. God doesn't do those things. That's not who God is. And so when the Bible says those things about God, you can't take that directly or, or seriously. You have, to, you have to know that our definition of God comes first, and then you interpret your Bible in terms of our definition of God. And I think this is what happened to me that day when I got up and I read that uh, that death came through one man, uh, Adam, and then that life, that resurrection came through a man. And I and I heard that and I thought like, but Jesus isn't a man. Jesus is God. He's not a man, because. What, what had been ingrained in my head was to think of Jesus in terms of divinity first to the exclusion of humanity. And so I read one author recently who, who made the remark, he said, he, he, I forget who, who it was I was reading, he said, in the, in the Catholic faith, many people, they identify with Mary much more strongly than they do with Jesus and and his speculation was because Mary is is human and people know she's human and, and so they can feel with her and they can understand her in some way and and Jesus he was God and we can't understand God we can't feel with him and when we think of his life we don't think of it in terms of like yeah, here was a guy who got wounded and lonely and tired and hungry and and who wept and who laughed and 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 we we don't think of Jesus as the the man who went ahead and 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 suffered as we did and is tempted as we do and um, and unfortunately even when our Bibles tell us these things about Jesus again and again and again and we'll see them in John these descriptions of Jesus like we're tempted right we're tempted to take this idea that we've been taught. And we put it over our Bible, and we read our Bible only through the lens of this uh, theology that we've been told. And at the heart of it are these ideas about the definition of who God is. What are the attributes of God? And, and how do those never change? And if Jesus was the Logos, he was the Word who was prostantheon, and he was towards God, and if, if what God was, the Word was in the beginning, then we conclude that 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 can't have changed. But where did we start here? Right in John 1, 14, is we read, the Word became flesh. The Word became, let's see if I can pull it up here. Right, and so we have, um, the Word 
became flesh and dwelt among us. Is this promise, the word, the logos that was, that was before it became flesh, it dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, right? John is saying we witnessed him and we saw God glorify him and do incredible things through him. And then he says it's glory as of the only son. This word son is actually uh, not present in the Greek. It's, it's the only begotten, if you will. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so here, you know, here we have this opportunity, if you will, for John to say, like, the word uh, took on flesh or he added, he added humanity on top of who he was, but he remained a fully God. Um, we, we have this opportunity for him to say Jesus became like this sort of dual two personalities melded into one, but he doesn't say that. He says, the word became flesh. Something new has happened. Something that was in existence outside of the physical realm, if you will, uh, came into the world, right? So John 1, 9, if we back up, the true light, right, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And when he was in the world, although the world was made through him, the world didn't know him. And so that, the logos, again, and I'm trying just to use John's words because I don't want to use all of the terms and all of the definitions that we've acquired over the years of talking about this at the risk of missing the truth here. That which was, that through whom was created all things, came into the, the very world he created and he became a part of it. And how exactly that works, I don't know. And probably if you put me before a board of theologians, I would be decried as a heretic by a good half of them. And the other half would say, no, he's not said anything wrong. Uh, but I, I'm going to leave this one to you and just say, look, keep your eyes on the text here. You know, if we want to know God, we want to know what he has revealed to us and not what other people have told us along the way that we have to assume is true before we get to the text itself. That which was, that which was in the beginning, that through which was created the world, that became flesh. Jesus gets you, my friend. He understands you because he became one of you. And that which was the Logos that was towards God is still the one who stands between us and the Father. He is still the one who represents us to the Father. He is still the mediator, the one between us and the Father. But he is not a stranger to your predicament and to your pain and to your hopelessness, to your hurt, and to the need to obey the Father who calls us and commands us and loves us. And so my urging to you is to look at the one who became flesh and understand today you can relate to him. He can relate to you because the word became flesh and he dwelt, he lived among us. There's one other tidbit here I'll give you, which is kind of neat. Uh, when it says that he uh, dwelt among us, that word there means he basically he uh, tented among us. He dwelt among us. He was there. Um, 
he uh, you could translate this he tabernacled among us so in the old testament when the jews came out of out of egypt when israel came out of egypt they built a tabernacle a tent and god put his presence there in the midst of israel and now john says right remember we're looking for links between moses and Jesus, right? So the presence of God was between the cherubim and the holy of holies, where only the high priest could go in the tabernacle. And now John says that, that the word came and became flesh. Didn't just live as this like being of uh, indefinite spiritual power and thrown between some cherubim, but he became flesh and he tabernacled, he tented, he made his dwelling place among us. And so Jesus is this uh, this physical representation, if you will, of the presence of God among us, which is why the scriptures said he would be called Emmanuel, God with us, because that which was now has become flesh among us. It's unspeakable. It's marvelous. If you try to get down to the mechanics of it, you're going to do some damage to it. So we just take it for what the text says, and we glorify God because he sent that unique son to live among us. So God bless you, my friends and brothers. Look to Christ. He is the one who has been given the name that is above every name, and it is God's absolute intent that every knee should bow before him to the glory of God the Father. We'll see you again here next time. Mm -hmm.